All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. Pardon me as I gradually get closer to the microphone. (laughs) Uh, I'm Missy. I'm a writer. And as I was working on the outline and dividing it into sections like mental illness and gender and community, I was like, oh, these are a few of my favorite things. No wonder I like Russian doll. (laughs) Also, (laughs) Natasha Leone is hot. So... (laughs) I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and I didn't really have anything to say, but once Missy said that, now I really, really like a re- remix of my favorite things, but <laughs> mental health. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Christmas, that is the Christmas song we deserve. Yeah, that's what I... Also, um, uh, what's her name? And Ruthie was so attractive when she was younger. Yeah, uh, it's uh, Alexis. Oh, did you not know no. Yeah, that's Alexis. I have to go look now. No that's wonder her. she was so hot. <laughs> yeah, that's her. I can't believe you didn't realize. She really, like, you really get a sense of how good of an actress is yeah. playing Ruthie um, after like, knowing her best as Alexis in Schitt's Creek. What is her real name? Oh, now I see it. Is it Annie? I think it's Annie. Annie something? Now I see it. What is her name? Fuck. Uh, it's uh, I just saw it. Annie Murphy. Annie Murphy. Thank you. Um, yes. So. Oh my god, it's amazing what a haircut can do. That's so funny that you didn't realize yeah, it was her. I didn't even yeah, it. that's her. She's she's Ruthie. Um, just as a content warning for this episode, we're talking about Russian dolls. So, uh, there's going to be discussions of suicide and anti-Semitism in particular, but also everything that happens in Russian Doll. So if you've seen it, you kind of know what you're in for. If you haven't seen it, peruse the content warnings on something like Does the Dog Die or elsewhere, because um, it is a heavy show, despite the fact that it's also really funny. Um, so Russian Doll is a 2019 Netflix original series created by Natasha Leone, Leslie Headland, and Amy Poehler, centered on Nadia Volvokov. Uh, In season one, Nadia is trapped in a time loop on her 36th birthday. She progresses through the night but keeps running into accidents that result in her death, placing her back at the moment where she stares into a mirror at her party. In one loop, she meets Alan... 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 She meets Alan Zaveri, who is reliving the day that he attempted to propose to propose to his girlfriend only to be rejected. The two work together to figure out what's going on, discovering that being highly independent as a coping mechanism has not worked out for them. In season two, Nadia gets on the subway and finds herself back in 1982, the year of her birth, inhabiting the very pregnant body of her mother. She chases down what happened to the family fortune while Alan travels back to the Cold War and inhabits the body of his grandmother, who helps a group of revolutionaries escape East Berlin by means of a tunnel. Um, That was the most bare bones summary of all time, but a really good one. To Thank be you. It's hard. Like Bob watched a, was like sitting in on a few of the episodes, and like I like don't even ask me what's going on because I literally can't tell you. It's a really <laughs> surreal show. Like I like telling you the events of the show does very little to explain the experience of watching the yeah. show, which are distinct entities. Yeah, I was like, she has herself that she just gave birth to herself. Yeah, you know, and now she's in a different time mm-hmm. as herself mm-hmm. with herself. Yes. As, aren't, aren't we all? Aren't we all? Um, 
So let's start out on a super light note here and talk about mental illness. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mental illness is a recurring theme throughout both seasons of Russian Doll, um, though characters are not explicitly diagnosed with things like nobody sits. I mean, literally, Ruth is a therapist, but she doesn't like diagnose people in the show. And that's not necessarily uncommon. Yeah, it's Um, not uncommon. Uh, Though they aren't explicitly diagnosed with things, it's not difficult to see that Nadia and Alan in particular, also Nora, and arguably most people in the show, because most people in real life are somewhat maladjusted, uh, most people are experiencing the consequences of unaddressed trauma, if not mental illness. Just as a, like brief aside like experiencing trauma is not necessarily does not necessarily equate to mental illness most people experience trauma at their some at their in their life at some point that doesn't necessarily manifest as mental illness but the two can also be related um so nadia is appealingly eccentric she appears like she seems to have her life together well enough like she has a stable job she's good at she has her own apartment she has a solid group of friends etc but when you spend more time with her and you see her in more vulnerable moments you see how trauma is impacting her despite the appearance of not normalcy because she's very eccentric but despite the appearance of stability like success even yeah um i mean she has a she has a nice apartment in Manhattan. Yeah. Like, that's a lot right there. <laughs> can't relate. Um, How do her friends make that much money as artists? I guess um, only one of them is an artist, right? Maxine is an artist and Lizzie... I, Lizzie seems to help artists because she was working with that person who's oh. pouring blood on something. I don't know what they all do. There could be like generational wealth. There could be any yeah. number of things happening. Um, so... Nadia, despite, you know, this appearance of stability, she can't grow attached to people and she has an especially hard time meeting children. Um, She fears turning 36 because it would mean outliving her mother who died by suicide at 35. She has a sort of devil may care attitude because it's easier than getting attached to anyone or anything. Uh, Despite like, for example, despite the dangers, she lets her cat oatmeal roam around New York City because she believes sentient beings deserve freedom. She's right. But freedom does not mean a rejection of safety. Right. Her like sentient beings deserve freedom. That does not mean that they should not be safe. Kids um, are at some point sentient. I think kids are always sentient. Yeah, it was a joke, but oh. <laughs> uh, you can't just let them run in the road, right? Um, likewise, Alan has the appearance of stability. He lives in a neat, orderly apartment, and until we meet him, had a stable relationship with a woman. Uh, but all of that is revealed to be artifice when we see him after things don't work out. He binge eats and drinks. He spends his time on video games, not in a like in a bad way. <laughs> Um, and then he cleans as a coping mechanism. Yeah, and then he cleans up the mess in the morning as if it never happened. Uh, he refuses therapy, and he's perfectly content to live the worst day of his life over and over again because at least he has control over it. Um, ne- neither character nor Nora, I don't think, is explicitly given a diagnosis of anything. We can make guesses at what they might be experiencing, but I don't think the point is to look at them and say, oh, they have X, Y, Z, so much as it is to say, oh, they are not well, and watch how they can get better with or without a clear idea of what's wrong. I saw a lot of articles online really trying to, one of two things, like, well, all the things well, but trying to diagnose her. Yes. And then people saying it's really bad, like, not bad, but like, if you trying to diagnose her is not the point of the show, yeah, then you should stop doing it. Yeah, people really wanted to diagnose her, mm-hmm. and I get that like want 
Especially if you are like relating to her in some way and you want answers for the way that you are. Um, but people really wanted to diagnose her. Yeah. And saw it as like a, like a, I don't know, like a aha moment of like, gotcha, you, this hasn't really been happening. Yeah. The point of the show, like I, like I just said, the point of the show is not Nora has XYZ diagnosis. It's, oh, she's not well. Yeah. And what do we do about somebody who is not well? That's what the show is getting at. Not, oh, she has this. Therefore, yeah. here's what we do. Yeah. Um, so this is a quote from Realistic we- Realistically Queer, Queer Connection and Interdependence in Russian Doll, which is by Meg Peters. This essay is going to get quoted a lot. Um, at first, before the audience is introduced to Alan, Nadia must fiercely uphold her sanity, rejecting the many people who call her crazy or ask, as a drug-making doctor asks her, whether she has a history of mental illness in her family. In the first two episodes, Nadia struggles against the implication that the loops she is experiencing are based in her own insanity, repeating that she is not crazy and that not everything has to do with the ways her mother ex- exercised self-harm and eventual suicide. The history of mental illness in her family is represented as a justification for calling her crazy, too, as the inability to conform to proper gendered behavior is passed on from her mother onto her. So the word crazy is a really contentious one, and I appreciate how it was handled in Russian Doll a lot. Uh, Ruth, who is a therapist, doesn't let people use the word crazy to define themselves in her house. And I can see why. Crazy is not necessarily an admission of defeat, but treating the word crazy like a diagnosis suggests that there is no moving beyond it. Now, to be clear, I don't want to suggest that it is by any sense true. As a person with mental illness, I am actually totally fine calling myself crazy at times because not because I think I'm doomed to be trapped in my destructive thought processes, because but because it's actually helpful for me to remind myself that I have a variety of things in my brain that don't work like most people. And crazy is a shorthand for that for me. That said, I don't want any fucking other person to call me crazy. Yeah, that is not your right. Yes, I would agree with that. That. I definitely I I feel empowerment in using crazy when describing myself because it's uh, similar to like w- what you said, but it just it really feels like a catch all first of all, and then second of all, like no, I tell you what I am, mm-hmm. not you, and I'm crazy. Yeah, but I think it is I think it is smart and nuanced the way that the show approaches the yes. use of the word crazy to say we don't use that word here. Not because they are stigmatizing the idea of being mentally ill, but because they are precisely not doing that. They are, um, Ruth, by by saying you can't use that word in my house, is encouraging her patients and the people that come to her house to look beyond a diagnosis as an explanation, which is part of the reason it's so frustrating when people fixate upon like diagnosing Nora. It's like, that's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is not to find the diagnosis. The point is to heal. Um But looking at a character like Nadia, who has clear baggage around mental illness because of her upbringing, crazy is not affirming. Mm -hmm. She's lived her life thus far afraid that her mother's illness will come back to haunt her. Uh, Not only that, Nadia is absolutely certain that what she's experiencing is real. To call her crazy is to undermine what she knows to be true. And to suggest that everything in her life comes back to her mother, it robs her of her independence, which particularly at her age in her situation is demeaning Mm -hmm. to say, like, everything you are is because of your mother. And like, to some extent, there are elements of that 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 are true. And that's for that's a season two Nadia problem. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Peters, the author of this essay, also invokes Nadia's gender here, which we'll come back to later. But it's true that Nadia does not perform her gender, quote unquote, correctly, in that she sleeps around, she does lots of drugs, she has a masculine coded job, and she even dresses in a way that's like on the femme side of androgynous, mm-hmm. but very structured and dark. And with so fashionable. So fashionable. How does she have such good fashion? Damn. Um, it's very structured and dark with masculine pieces like her blazer, um, the suggestion of a tie, etc. Calling her crazy suggests her mother's mental illness, Nadia's own trauma, and points toward her way of living as stemming from her trauma rather than something that she does because she likes it. And all of that is extremely dehumanizing. Uh, Yeah, it would be extremely frustrating to... Uh, you essentially have no control over... People are saying you have no control over your life. Yes, and that's infuriating. That's terrible. Um, another quote from that same ex- essay, Realistically Queer, by Meg Peters. This struggle to be recognized as sane is not uncommon for women who are deemed to be doing gender wrong. Throughout history, women have been more likely to be diagnosed with a number of psychological or psychiatric disorders. And there's a great deal of feminist literature that is invested in challenging the pathology pathologization I don't know (laughs) you got it sorry it's better than the other one uh all of them uh the pathologization of gender gender undone um at the end of the second episode Nadia finally seems to agree with the people in her life who call her crazy telling her former guardian Ruth who is also a psychologist the safe word that they agreed upon when she was growing up asking to be put into a psych ward once in the back of an ambulance on her way to the closest psych ward she realizes her mistake as three white men decide whether her behavior or feelings merit admission to the psych facility i'm like that's like (laughs) realistic yeah (laughs) it's unfortunately realistic and i can't remember if i took this out of the outline but did you notice that those three men are the same three men that appear elsewhere in the show i was reading about that yeah yeah it's the same three. they're her bosses they're the men at the grocery store in the hospital who cat call her yeah and they are the men in the ambulance um so very smart show (laughs) yeah uh russian doll is a show that's very interested in history and we see this literally through nadia and alan's journeys to the past in season two but we also see it in things like this where history as well as contemporary information feed into the way that nadia is treated typical behaviors for women were pathologized throughout history as were deviations from the norm which could include everything from same gender attraction to talking back to your husband to advocating for women's suffrage all of those things have been pathologized and been grounds for like commitment to or a witch yeah all of any any kind of deviation from the norm could be pathologized and be an excuse for punishment or ostracized ostracization from society in a clinic so quickly yeah put me right in uh those deviations could be treated with everything from therapy to lobotomies um calling something including something as simple as Nadia not dressing in a ver- in a typically feminine fashion uh calling something like that a symptom of a disorder could lead to dehumanizing treatment and institutionalization um this is carried forward to the modern era with Nadia voluntarily suggesting that she be institutionalized but realizing when she's in the back of the ambulance that three men and oh I did put it in here <laughs> they're played by the same three men in the bodega the first night of the time loop and the same oh, three co-workers in the bodega too. Okay. yeah who attempt to undermine her at work um 
so she realizes when she's in the back of the ambulance that the, that those three men are in charge of deciding whether she is mentally stable. One of them seems to hone in on sexualizing her and the mm-hmm. others feel more focused on proving her like, abnormal than on solving her distress. Um, they don't listen to what she's saying and discount her entirely because they believe that she is crazy. There's no room for her lived experience in their minds. When she realizes this, she rejects being committed, affirms her sanity and tries something else. Which is going to bring us to another section of mental health, which is trauma. Just a real light episode today. It is. Just a real light episode. Really, yeah. Uh, Obviously, Nadia is carrying around a lot of trauma. She had an unstable upbringing with a mentally ill mother and absent father. She lost her mother at a a young age after, in her mind, rejecting her for youth. For Ruth, rather, not for youth. She is feeling guilt over the fact that she chose Ruth over her mother. Um, While I'm sure Ruth has helped her through large portions of that trauma, Ruth can't address what Nadia refuses to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, It takes being confronted with this trauma again and again for Nadia to admit that it exists. Once she admits that that trauma is real, that her desire for freedom and a lack of commitment are not because she really wants those things, but because becoming attached and dependent on others is scary. That's the point where she can begin to heal. And that's what we see take place over the first season of the show. Imagine if we all had to go through this to heal from our trauma. I know. (laughs) Something that well, while reading this, I was like, oh, man, she really had to go through some trauma to solve her trauma. Yeah. <laughs> She's like replacing trauma with other trauma. Yeah. Um, but there's more to it, too. There's also the intergenerational trauma of Nadia's oh. learned behaviors from being the daughter of a mentally ill woman. There's the financial instability of her childhood and the anger she feels toward her, toward her mother for losing what was meant to be her college fund. There's the um, these are things that can't be they can't be resolved, right? Like you can't fix it. You can't undo trauma inflicted on you by your parents. Um, well, Nadia could certainly learn to live differently. Her mother can't unlose the Krugerrands, hence season two. Like no matter how hard she tries, no matter how hard she tries, her mother cannot unlose the Krugerrands. The past is the past. Um, And going a step further, uh, there's another kind of inherited trauma referred to as epigenetic trauma, how much of her family's life was stolen, uprooted, and destroyed by the Nazis. Some scientific studies, not all, but some, have shown that people whose families have undergone extreme trauma can pass on genetic changes to their children. For example, people who underwent starvation during pregnancy tend to have heavier-than-average babies. The thinking goes that starvation essentially turns off the mechanism that causes the body to feed on its fat stores. That would make Makes sense because you're changing some when you do something like starve yourself you're changing something within your body t- for a survival situation right. and I feel like this this works really well with um, kids being born without wisdom teeth mm-hmm. so that makes sense to me when when trauma causes something physical within your body yeah it is it's it's a thing I think is currently being studied they, I'll put a link to this one in the uh, this thing that I read in the show notes that talks about the starvation thing um, Nadia actually even refers to this field of study explicitly epigenetics uh, when she says she will travel back in time to quote mitigate the epigenetic k-hole before it begins <laughs> I um, didn't know what that meant until her this is like oh okay yeah she's she's literally <laughs> referring to genetic changes that occur as a result of energy generational trauma um refer and when she says that she's referring to trying to save the family's belongings from the nazis or from being converted into the krugerrands that nora would eventually steal oh that was so frustrating to watch yeah (laughs) though nadia herself isn't religious or at least not particularly religious she calls 
she calls religion stupid at one point. Um, she is still Jewish in terms of her heritage, and she is carrying around the aftermath of the Holocaust and its impacts on the world, and specifically on her family. Much of her life has been impacted by the theft of her family's belongings by the Nazis, and in season two, she has to face the fact that there is no changing that, nor is there any uh, any result from from or nor is there any way to relieve its impacts on her. Her attempts to replace the Krugerrands with something else results in more Krugerrands, and her attempt to remove herself from her upbringing entirely causes the causes just catastrophe um nadia is a product of her mother of vera and the holocaust and all of that is inescapable but running from that truth or trying to change it only results in disaster even though she lived most of her life disconnected from her family their trauma still persists in her she can't run away from the trauma that is literally part of her ancestry um as Emily Barak as observes in her article, Netflix's Russian doll is surprisingly deeply Jewish. The inability to trust anybody after the trauma of the Holocaust is itself associated with not just the atrocity committed against Nadia's family specifically, but Jewish people as a whole. I'm not Jewish, um, so I'm relying on the writing of other Jewish people. There are so many fascinating pieces of writing about the show from Jewish people. I highly recommend seeking it out, looking for just Googling like Russian doll Jewish and learning about the um, parts of Jewish mysticism that make up things like the fact that it's Nadia's 36th birthday. There is there is a folkloric reason that can explain why it's her 36th birthday. Um, hmm. It's It's fascinating and the work of Jewish scholars on this article on this article on the show is like really 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 interesting um anyway so Barack suggests that the darkness and humor of this show is something that comes from Nadia and Natasha Leone's Jewish background even if neither is necessarily practicing the religion their lives and viewpoints are informed by the shared trauma which for many Jewish people manifests as a dark gallows sense of humor which the show absolutely has a very dark gallows sense of humor accurate um, and as uh, Mariana Salem suggests in the second season of Russian Doll is a surreal yet tender look at interge intergenerational trauma. And this is a quote. Um, Russian doll surrealism shows how this removal doesn't exclude her from carrying the fallout. Absence and, and disconnection is their own injury and leaves their own kind of scar. As she possesses the body of her estranged mother and grandmother, Nadia is forming the first genuine connection she's ever had with them, a connection that allows her to fill the void she inherited from their absence with compassion for the ableism, anti-Semitism, and fascism they, en they endured. Um, I think people like Ruth feel sorry for characters like Nora and Nadia, but Nadia, by traveling to the past, has the unique ability to literally get inside the heads of the people who she has been blaming, subconsciously or not, for the current trauma she carries. When she's able to do that and to see what her mother experienced, like quite literally experienced mm -hmm. psychosis alongside her. That was really good. Yeah. That, that part was so good. Yeah. And, like. And you see the compassion that she develops for her and that like, I think she says something along the lines of like, mom, is this what you felt yeah, all the time? Really what life was like for you? Yeah. It um, like, makes her understand why her, her childhood was so fucked. Yeah. And it, cause how could it not be? Yeah. Um, so it lets her literally get inside of the heads of the people who she has been blaming, whether subconsciously or not for the current comma that trauma current trauma that she carries when she's able to do that and to see what her mother experienced and why vera did what she did she can respond with compassion she can't cut herself off from her history and expect to heal she has to face it head on even though that's an immensely difficult thing to do it is so hard to look at your past and be like yeah that fucked me up yeah. but also like 
those are people, yeah, <laughs> you it's, know? It's Well, she has to learn how to not blame her mom for everything. Yeah. And I think that's it was not easy for her, but it was convenient for her to be like, my mom fucked me up. Yeah. And, and like to an more than that. To an extent, that's true. Yeah, but it's beyond <laughs> that. Yeah. She, she really has to learn to develop compassion for this woman who made her life so difficult, um, but who wasn't, it's not like Nora was evil. Or, like, mm-hmm. trying to make her life bad. Nora was battling her own situation. Um, do you have anything else? This, mental health is going to be woven through the whole thing. Yeah. So, like, this isn't the end of that conversation. But, like, with what we've talked about so far, do you have anything else you want to add there? No, I just think it was... it. I think it handled it pretty well. And I think um, some standout moments, like, the psychosis part was really like yeah. a standout moment for me. Um, the The damage mentally it was like to her for going into the uh, warehouse that had all of the Jewish belongings. Yeah. Like the way it affected her was really like, you could tell it just affected her. I mean, affected me. Mm-hmm. So like having to like face that trauma in such a very realistic way, mm-hmm. uh, impressive that she was able to not break down. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about gender. Uh so we're going to switch gears a little bit here, which is difficult because in my in my opinion, the show is largely about mental health and trauma, and it's hard to disentangle one theme from another. Um, so we're really not going to do that. We're just going to talk about a different angle of it, um, which is gender and more specifically gender failure, quote unquote, uh, as one of the drivers for the conflict in Russian Doll. So this is another quote from that same Realistically Queer article by Meg Peters. Um, which overall this essay examines queerness not through the lens of romantic relationships between humans, but also queerness in a more general sense of prioritizing interdependence outside of romance, which the author argues destabilizes both homo and heterosexuality. Um, That's just kind of a primer for what the author is talking about here. Uh, But this is the quote. I demonstrate... It's talking about the function of the essay. I demonstrate that interdependency, not normative heterosexuality, resolves the problems of the characters. Russian Doll pushes the boundaries of relations between all beings, making it challenge hetero slash homonormativity and close normativities that would act as resolutions to mental distress and the linear nature of time. Russian Doll is a realistic is realistically queer because of its insistence on gender failure, its challenge of conventional solutions to mad distress and its emphasis on relationality within and against time. So realistically queer uh, doesn't seem like a phrase to describe a show that is largely about two people who seem to be heterosexual, though I would argue that season two muddies the waters a bit there in a really interesting way when it comes to Alan. Um, What Peters is arguing here is less about queer representation in the sense of characters on screen being queer and more to do with the challenges it poses to norms, especially gender norms and the relationships between people. Could all of this, this section kind of be like, related or compared to pushing daisies i think there yeah i think that there is not dissimilarity between the two in terms of um a disruption of something that is seen as binary and something that it's not queer as in literally two people of the same gender kissing on screen it's queer as in it's a challenge to homo or heteronormativity and homo even homonormativity which is not a thing that like exists in the world in most spaces but Um, the fact that it is challenging gender and the norms of gender makes it that. That yeah, it's this it's this non it's it's a, a sense of queerness that is more academic and rooted in uh theory as opposed to experience, if that mm-hmm. if that makes sense. 
Yes, it does. I it's it is often hard for people who don't interact with like theory yes. very option very often to understand that like to queer something in an academic sense means to resist the norm or actively defy the norm. Um and I, I understand where like frustration with that use of the word comes from, but it is like queer scholars are very uh purposeful in in doing this it mm-hmm. is it is not just an appropriation of the word queer it is it is a deliberate use so it's so a use of the word queer then in that situation and how it challenges heteronormativity simply because i don't know how i want to ask this question we'll get more into it okay. but there's the there's gender failure and then there is no gender solution in the show okay here's how i want to act Okay. Before I forget, is it because heteronormativity is so ingrained in our in like in every single thing we do to do something different is to queer it? Yes, but it has to be deliberate. Okay. So okay, okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. And I and I see why it has to be deliberate. Yeah, I understand why it has to be deliberate. Yeah, because if it were because you're actively defying. Uh, the best way I can think to to explain this idea of queering is to think of this like famous. Uh, like queer protest slogan, which is not gay is and happy, queer is and fuck you. Okay, yeah, queer is yes, and fuck you. That is it. That makes a lot of sense. That's, yeah, that that really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um. So realistically, que- queer, like I said, doesn't seem like a like a phrase to describe a show that is largely about two people who seem to be heterosexual. Um. What Peters is arguing here is less about queer representation in the sense of characters on screen being queer and more to do with the challenges it poses to norms, especially gender norms and the way that people relate to one another. Um, it's worth noting that Leslie Headland, one of the creators of Russian Doll, is a queer woman. Uh, even if the show isn't about queerness in the common usage, i.e. about people who are not straight or not cis, uh, it is not going it is going to be informed by her lived experience. Among other experiences, I think that Amy Poehler and Natasha Leone are both straight, but they also have different experiences of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Peters argues in this essay, which we'll hear more from in a bit, that the queerness in Russian Doll comes from the way that the show emphasizes the importance of interconnectedness among everything including non-human animals non-animal objects and also humans thereby making it challenge norms of all kinds um peters also writes about gender failure which is what we'll talk about more here because the characters of the show are not adhering well to the gender norms set by society Mm -hmm. so another quote from that essay by meg peters after a large gap (laughs) um The ending also opens heterosexuality, challenging the impossible standard of correct relational experience by having both heterosexual male and female main characters remain strangers, not lovers, by the end. In doing so, it challenges the closed normativity of monogamous heterosexuality and the closed normativity of proper feminine or masculine performance. Unlike Groundhog Day, which ends with Phil performing a masculinity that finally entices a woman, Russian Doll ends with two characters that still do not perform gender in a way that would entice the other into romantic attachment. Even if even if the loops begin because of gender failure, the loops do not end because of gender success. So to be clear, Peters is not arguing that Nadia and Alan are being punished by the narrative for failing to perform gender correctly. If that was the case, they would see their gender reconciled by the end of the series. Mm-hmm. Peters establishes gender failure as Alan's failure to have a stable relationship and Nadia's preference for her cat over a child, both, her, both having her own child and having a relationship with Lucy, John's daughter, because Nadia kept flaking on meeting her and that eventually broke them up. 
Um, if the narrative used their gender defiance as something that needed to be healed, the end would mean that Alan would have a stable relationship and get his bad habits together, and Nadia would settle down with someone and raise a child or something. The natural ending for that kind of story would be Nadia and Alan get together and have Ugh. a stable relationship. Ugh. Um, I don't like it. I'm also pretty sure that the reason that Alan was able to have a normal relationship with uh the man was because maybe he's not straight yeah and like it kind of feels like he's had never had like a stable relationship with a woman yeah there's certainly something there and one of the, sure. the biggest things about season two the miss the missed opportunity i think of the show is how little of alan I know. is there being explored there's but i do think there's so much that had to go into nadia's story yeah I for understand sure and why it had to kind of be pushed to the side yeah but it kind of feels like then why bring him in? Yeah, but it's important to ha- because he's he was so he was so important to the first season. Yeah, so it was frustrating. That's, but I kind of wonder if they see season one as being a shared story between Nadia and Alan, but Alan really gets the conclusion in that one. That is true. That is and true. Season two has Nadia getting more of a conclusion. I'm hoping season three will be a bit if they are able to make a season three that it will be a bit more Alan heavy. Yeah. Um. So instead, Alan accepts the breakup with Beatrice and Nadia recovers oatmeal. We don't know if she ever goes and meets Lucy. That's not important to the story being told. Um, Lucy hates her. Yeah. So we know that's not the case. And what Peters argues is that there's a challenge to normativity in this ending. They weren't performing gender correctly by normative standards, but healing doesn't come from suddenly doing it right. So where does it come from? I thought the, like... I think we talk about this later. I'll, I'll, okay, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Make a note of it if you want to. No, I have it in my head. Um, Peters has a slightly different interpretation of the ending than I do, and I also think this was written before season two. Uh, in that, they suggest that Alan and Nadia are strangers at the end, but the point about them not being lovers remains true. Neither Nadia nor Alan are healed by romantic entanglement, and it's not used as evidence of their healing either. Instead, the ending features, in my interpretation, the timelines where they saved one another merging and becoming one, and the two of them joining the parade with expressions of joy, in Alan's case, and determination in Nadia's case. Um, so if nothing about their relationship to gender or gender expression changes, despite it initially violating gender norms, what's the point of violating the gender norms? Well, one, not everybody expresses or experiences gender in the same way. And that's a representation of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to understand that a non-normative relationship with gender is not evidence of brokenness. Uh, but nothing being resolved there, I think, leads us somewhere interesting in season two. So Alan's story is really short and, in my opinion, unsatisfying in season two. But for him to travel backward and experience life as his grandmother in East Berlin is a pretty radical experience. Mm -hmm. He's inhabiting the body of a woman. He's having a relationship and presumably sex with a man and finding it immensely rewarding. Like, I don't know if he's literally in love with I think his name is Lenny. I don't know if he's literally in love with him, but he is getting something from this relationship with a man Mm -hmm. that he did not get from his relationship Mm -hmm. with Beatrice. Um, he seems to grieve Lenny leaving East Berlin as if it was a death because for him it kind of is. Well, and it isn't just Lenny either. It's mm-hmm. it's when he walks down the road and gets catcalled. He's like, "Oh, I kind of like this." Yeah, he has this really interesting relationship with inhabiting a woman's I body. If we will see, um, I said Lenny, uh, Alan, maybe. I don't want to say trans, but maybe we'll see Alan be non-binary or something. Yeah, I think that there's something 
interesting there in his relationship to gender, especially when you look at season one, Alan, and you see him adhering to these really rigid ideals of masculinity, even at the same time as he's more in touch with his emotions than Nadia is, but he's still like, gotta work out. Mm -hmm. Gotta have a shredded bod. It feels very like if, uh, like it doesn't feel like American Psycho in a lot of ways, but that that rigidness to maleness Mm -hmm. feels very similar to me of like looking at yourself in the mirror as you you work out. Not that Alan would do that, but Alan would feel like he should be doing that. Yeah. I should be doing that. He has a, he seems to have a discomfort in his relationship to masculinity Mm -hmm. that actually mirrors Nadia's relationship to her, like to discomfort with femininity. Mm -hmm. Nadia I think just like has a I don't care attitude Mm -hmm. whereas Alan cares very much and pretends he doesn't which I which is such a bummer that we didn't get more like introspective view into what Alan was experiencing as a woman as his grandmother yeah um it's it's this other experience of of life and letting go for Alan which is something he desperately needed especially because he really can't control the trajectory of what's going on with his grandmother and Lenny. Mm-hmm. Um as for Nadia she never says as much but it wouldn't be surprising if her relationship to femininity is fraught after living with her mentally ill mother. Uh when she inhabits Nora in season 2 she's forced to experience psychosis firsthand and she develops a new understanding and forgiveness for her mother that she couldn't have without literally seeing through her eyes. Likewise Traveling back further and inhabiting Vera, she has to realize that her personality wouldn't have flown under the scrutiny uh, Hungarian Jews were under during World War II. Mm -hmm. She sees how much of her grandmother's life and expression were under the scrutiny of others. Again, this doesn't cause her to change because there is nothing wrong with Nadia's outward expression. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with it. But being forced to live as other people, people who have felt like unreasonable obstacles in her life, this enriches her understanding of them and allows her a bit more empathy. Also, I do want to say there is actually a small but not insignificant change in wardrobe that I was reading about. Hmm. Um, it's not at the end of season. Well, season one, she mostly wears black. And then she has when on her second day, if she makes it to day two, she wears a red shirt with a black tie. Um, she mostly wears black or a really bold color. But at the end of the season, uh, Maxine throws a drink on her and she borrows Maxine's shirt and it's a it's a, like a cream colored shirt. She's like branching out of this like very stark word where wardrobe that she wears. Um it's not that Nadia's look gets more feminine or that she stops sleeping around or anything like that, but in the end of season 1 she switches from a mostly all black very structured wardrobe to wearing a more feminine shirt from Maxine. In season 2 she continues to wear more masculine clothing but chooses a ruffled white shirt for herself. Like it's it's more feminine in its details. It's less about becoming more feminine and more about not rejecting the feminine yeah. in my opinion. And I think that's they did that so well with like the clothing and the subtleness. Yeah. I feel like we're breezing too fast through here. I but think this has gotten really good. This is an 18-page outline. I don't know, Missy. I don't know what's going on. Maybe we experienced time travel. Oh, God. Um, do you have anything else to say about the, the gender? Again, we're going to talk more about it because you can't yeah. pull these things apart from one another. No, it's really interesting. And I feel like every time we talk about gender, I learn something new. That's good. There's so much to learn about gender. Like, je- like I think that like queer theory and all that kind of stuff is so deep it's like impossible unless you're super ingrained to just like know so much yeah it always feels like i'm learning something obviously i'm which is but which is good like i think it's good for everybody to kind of question stuff like that and and like really get your get your fingers in it and be like sometimes discomfort discomforted by what you find i sure did feel uncomfortable with nadia like nadia made me uncomfortable i told (laughs) me this the other day like she physically made me uncomfortable and i think like 
seeing clips from the show is probably why I put off watching it so much because she makes me feel uncomfortable. And like, I think that's not a bad thing. Obviously, the show's really good. But, and it's not like I had a hard time like feeling like, um, sympathy for her or anything like that she just made me feel uncomfortable <laughs> when she had sex alan does too though alan makes me feel uncomfortable too yeah the only person who doesn't all of her other friends that make me feel great <laughs> <laughs> but like alan and her make me feel uncomfortable and i feel like there's probably a reason that those two people specifically make yeah. me feel uncomfortable my nadia is my favorite kind of character <laughs> yeah just like an absolute train wreck of a person ruining her own life constantly i love it um also, in my opinion, I don't really like when they do stylized stuff in TV and movies to show that people are on drugs. It generally irritates me. But the scene in the second season when they, I don't know, I can't remember what she does. She does some kind of drug at the party. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think she just took a drug. I don't she think just took she a drug. Um, and it's like all of these really wild scenes and her like coming out of a grave and stuff. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, it was really good. Um, most of the time, I don't like it. It just it just bothers me for whatever reason. I think but it I... just fit into this absolutely wild show. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it really worked for me. So let's talk about Community. Not the TV show. Not the TV show. Um, this is a show about two people who are very concerned with their independence and not relying on other people. Um, we don't know much of Alan's background, but as we get to know his story, we see how he's refused to open up and how that has impacted his relationship with Beatrice. God, the nuance there was so good. Mm -hmm. When he has a when he has a conversation with Beatrice, and you don't come away from it being like Beatrice is a nasty bitch no. who cheated on our beloved Alan. You're mm -hmm. like, oh, Alan. It's like she's not absolved of blame for cheating because that's an act that she did. Yeah, but you understand like how she got there because Alan is so closed off yeah. and, like, and like unemotional being afraid he's going to kill himself and then he does and yeah it's like that burden that he would have placed on mm -hmm. her but at the same time it's like not necessarily like <clears throat> it's not like he chose to put that burden on her right it, it was is it, it was very nuanced you're, for, you're a very right. for a show that is so short <laughs> like there's so much packed into every moment of the show. I think you really have to be watching for those things yeah. to really appreciate it. You can watch the show not noticing those things, but when you do, I think it feels even more like oh fuck. The show's definitely, I, I would say, even better on a second watch. Yeah. Um, Nadia, on the other hand, has lots of friends, but they repeatedly admonish her for not asking for help, like over and over and over again. They're yeah. like, ask for help, you fucking idiot. And it's clear from how many times they're like, you can't leave, that she often leaves her friends' parties yeah. or get togethers or whatever She, she before... It feels like before things get too personal, right? It's before they sing happy birthday to yeah. her if they were even going to do it. It's before she opens presents from people who are her friends. It's before they even eat together. And it's to go sleep with the worst man. Yeah. <laughs> Just she the found worst the worst man. person and said, I'll leave, I'll leave before. <laughs> like she doesn't even eat the poor chicken. <laughs> I fucking love Maxine and if people don't eat this chicken I'll kill myself yeah. it cracks me it reminds me so much of how my friends talk to one another yeah. <laughs> that scene is just like perfect <laughs> um yeah, <laughs> Nadia is afraid of becoming like her mother, and that includes the death that that would entail. Uh, and in the time, the time loop actually pushes her toward that fear by exposing her repeatedly to death, and also to the assurance that no matter what, she has a community to lean on. 
Uh, and this is another quote from Realistically Queer by Meg Peters. Shout out to Meg Peters for this really good essay. Um, Alan's realization that the world is, quote, literally falling apart, unquote, is because of his own gender failure that allows him to let go of this failure. Alan's mental distress is resolved when he lets Nadia help him, and he acknowledges that everyone else is also trying and failing to live. Nadia's mental distress is also resolved, not through talk therapy or medicalization, but through Ruth's help, whose friendship and support allows her to stop having to repeat claims of sanity. Russian Doll therefore makes claims about mental distress that do not involve medicalized or pathologized help or therapy, instead advocating for community support. Now, we here at Fake Geek Girls are very in favor of medical and therapeutic help for mental illness. Sometimes you need those things. Yep. Uh, not everybody does, but there is absolutely no shame in needing them. Not every solution is right for everybody either. I, for example, am not medicated for a variety of reasons, but I am very involved in therapy and completing all of my therapy homework and so on because that is what works for me. Whereas I have a personal relationship with my pharmacist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they know me. That said, you can take the right medications and see your therapist daily and still be unhappy because while medical and therapies support are great humans are social i can't tell you how many times when like getting different medications for different mental illnesses i've had the doctor tell me like every time now there's a difference between like being depressed and not having a good day like my therapist would tell me this my doctor told me this as she's like describing me things this difference between like feel having a bad day and feeling sad and not being happy and being depressed yes so this is like it it, it just it, it just is. Yeah. He, so again, medical therapy and medical and therapy support are great, but humans are social. We need community. We need people to understand and support us. We cannot grow alone. Nadia and Alan are experiencing mental distress. Alan, I think most obviously, because they are trying to do everything alone without support. Uh, all of the therapy and medication in the world could ease their symptoms, right? They may not, for example, if Alan was on medication, maybe he would have not felt the desire to kill himself. Or after. at least been able to, to push back on it more. Yeah, like he may not have felt that desire as extremely, but it wouldn't it wouldn't make him necessarily happy, no. right? Um so, you know, it can help you feel better, but it may not necessarily make you turn to your community for help, which you also need to grow and to heal. The whole time loop forces these two characters together, beginning with the world they recognize and slowly stripping away the excuses they have for why they're okay. Mm -hmm. Like, Nadia's like, I'm fine. I can care for things. I have oatmeal. What's the first thing to go missing? Oatmeal. Uh, before anything even happens. Yeah, before anything even happens, oatmeal goes missing. Uh, and then objects. Alan's fish tank, for example. Alan's like beautiful furniture goes missing. All of these things just start to disappear. And finally, people start disappearing. Like most of the people at the party are gone. Mm -hmm. People on the street are gone. Um all of these things get stripped away until they have no choice but to confront that what they need to get better is one another. Not because Alan is Nadia's magic bullet for healing or vice versa, but because she looked him in the eye and thought about helping him, but chose not to. When she extends her hand to help him, even though it's an inconvenience and it's her birthday and she wants to fuck this terrible man... <laughs> She becomes a new person. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a quote from Reliving the City, the Urban Time Loop of Russian Doll by Oren Posner. Um, 
a special shout out to Oren Posner for being the fastest person ever to respond on academia.edu for my request to read a paper. Um, so this quote goes, Nadia's job as a video game programmer is not coincidental. Early in the first episode, she says that while she designs games, she quote, she quote, doesn't play unquote, an avoidance that reflects her apathetic refusal to significantly engage with the world around her, which she is then which she is then thrust into through the video game-like time loop. Later, when Nadia finds in Alan's apartment a copy of the first video game she ever designed, Alan complains that he was never able to finish it since she, quote, created an impossible game with a single character who has to solve everything entirely on her own, unquote. (laughs) Nadia herself admits that the avatar in the video game resembles her. It has her distinctive hairstyle. And eventually also concedes that the game is impossible when the avatar keeps dying again and again. Through the discussion of video games, Russian Doll makes its message clear. Nadia is a character who insists on doing everything entirely by herself to her own detriment, refusing to notice her environment, join in and form partnerships. The time loop narrative structure then forces her to actively engage with her surroundings. Furthermore, meeting Alan works to transform both Nadia's own character and the old time loop narrative trope. No longer featuring a single hero with a single goal, the narrative becomes not about a single hero on a quest, but about a community, specifically the community of the city, which is the narrative setting. It feels like at some point there's this switch between let's figure out what's going on and the why this is happening and let's figure out, you know, let's go with the flow and see where it takes us. Yeah. Um, I love that this essay emphasizes community not just as an individual thing, as in the community we form around ourselves, but also the city itself. I had to cut a lot of this for time, but there is interesting context to the setting of Russian Doll, not just New York City. Maybe next time don't cut it. I I know, we're breezing (laughs) right through. Um, The setting being not just New York City, but specifically the East Village, which had a vibrant art scene in the 1970s and as a result became heavily, heavily gentrified. Um, And you can see some of this reflected in the show, the parts about the yeshiva school being repurposed for a very fancy apartment, for example. There is evidence of the gentrification that took place in the East East Village of New York um, throughout the show. And that sense of like, what is this place that used to be something different, but is now this? How does that change our relationship with the space, but also the people who inhabit the space. All of that is like, again, this is a really layered show. You can go so deep into it. Hence the fucking title, Russian doll. You think you've seen it. And inside is another one. And then there's another one inside of that. And it sounds like they're all just on the ground. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So this essay connects the theme of Nadia and Alan's refusal to depend on others to a sort of isolation from other people, but also from the city itself and like the way that the city is represented by the individuals that inhabit it. It definitely feels like New York has always been in multiple different types of media, like its own entity. Yeah. Of it of itself, of it like almost a own person, its own person. And I think that also goes I asked Missy the other day, I'm like, is are there multiple like is is uh time travel within the <laughs> subway in New York a trope? Because <laughs> the second one I've seen where a uh, time traveling with with like on the subway and I think your response is good of like it, it feels like you're in a different place. And I feel like that might be true for New York as well. I think I think literally a subway station is a liminal space. Um and liminal spaces are a popular um, a popular source for narratives of change. Hmm. Um, much like, again, to return to another word, another academic word we like to use on occasion, they're heterotopias, the potential <laughs> of meaning different place. They're, they're a place where the potential for difference exists. Yeah. Um, liminal spaces being a, uh, uh, a place with the possibility of, of change. 
and a heterotopia being a sort of outside place like heterotopias uh, as Foucault wrote about them are places like mental institutions or prisons where um, the other is sent um, but also a place of change and possibility. Um, so this is another quote from Reliving the City by Oren Posner. Uh, in her analysis of narrative representations of the city, Hannah Worth Nesher identifies four aspects of the cityscape, one of which being the human environment, which, quote, does not refer to the characters whose actions or thoughts constitute the main movement of the plot, but rather to human features that constitute settings, such as commuter crowds, street peddlers, and passerby, unquote. This human layer of the city is on the one hand the object of the flaneur's passion for walking and looking in the city, but on the other, it can be the reason for feeling alienated and alone in the city. In Russian Doll, the line between background, environment characters, and main characters is broken, with Nadia befriending the homeless horse and Alan a passerby. By breaking that boundary and engaging with other people, the urban protagonist may transform to more social characters who can thrive in the city as part of its community. So, of course, there are background characters who are just background characters in Russian Doll. But the way that they begin disappearing from the city is also a red flag for Nadia and Alan. Like when when people in the city start disappearing, maybe they don't take notice at first, but they do eventually take notice. And not just because New York is busy and there are suddenly fewer people in it. Um, and people who might otherwise be overlooked become key parts of the show, with Horse being one of the best examples. <laughs> I was really impressed with how this show handled homelessness. Yeah. Not just because there's sympathy for Horace as like the, you know, like the good homeless guy, um, but because it touches on things like uh, sleep, like how sleeping outdoors is dangerous mm -hmm. and how sleeping in shelters is a different kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. And by not demonizing drug use or mental illness, like a lot of a lot of the things I was reading called uh, called Nadia an addict and really I'm not sure I agree I she, I think that really I really drugs are certainly a coping mechanism for Nadia but I wouldn't call her an addict I don't see her like there's no like need to mm -hmm. be like oh shit I gotta go do this or I'm gonna freak out I think it's really complicated but I, 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 I don't know the addict is the right word and I really appreciated that the show literally at one point shows her huffing paint with a homeless man and that is not the cause of her death in any other show yeah. that would be what killed her But what, and I don't think it's that particular loop but there is a loop where she dies after sleep it's, it sounds like they had sex I don't think they did when she sleeps outside with horse and she dies of hypothermia. I I never in my like the drugs honestly in the show never really like I wasn't like oh she's doing drugs again or I would have never ever really thought about that. I think drugs are certainly a coping me mechanism for Nadia, but I don't know that she is an addict. I yeah, I think a second run through where I'm actually looking for that. I guess there's just so much more else going on. I don't really even notice the drugs very much. Yeah. So I guess that's why for me I'm just like, what are you talking about? There's a lot of recreational drug use in the show by people who do not who seem to be using it recreationally and not as um I guess it comes down to how do you define an addict? Right. Well there's like physical difficult. there's physical addiction and and um, it could very well be that Nadia is a functional addict, uh -huh. but I don't get, I don't, I don't know. I don't really get that impression from her. She seems like a person who really likes to use drugs recreationally. I think we'd also have to see Nadia before all this happens because she could just be replacing one addiction with another sure. and it not being necessarily an addiction, but an obsession that is, yeah. cause like a lot of mental illness, you get hyper fixated on things. Mm -hmm. And so it may simply be, she's trading one for another. So I feel like I would have to see Nadia before all this happens. Yeah. I, the thing is, I 
don't necessarily think that she is using drugs in a healthy fashion. No. But I also don't know that there is evidence for me to say she is an addict. I would agree with that. Um. Anyway, the point. my point here was that the show is not just like sympathetic to horse, but it goes out of its way to show that unhoused people are part of the fabric of a city and they are not less important just because they don't live in a nice apartment. Mm -hmm. Like arguably horse is more important to the narrative than Maxine who does live in a fancy apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just because he is some magical homeless man who understands Nadia because they both share trauma. He's a little weirdo (laughs) goblin man. Um, and you don't trying to survive. He's just trying to survive much like Nadia is. They just have two different ways of living in the world. Um, likewise, some of the background characters, one of the best examples being the woman with the dog that Alan runs into. And he's like, Hey, who are you? What's this with your dog? I haven't seen you before, which is a super weird thing to say to somebody, but like it, you know, contextually for Alan, it makes sense. Um, these these background characters become anchors for Alan and Nadia. The presence of other people, even strangers, is a sign that the world is functioning properly because we are not meant to be alone. Um, the people who live in the city, no matter where they live, no matter if they're important to the story, are essential to the city's existence. Without them, something is clearly wrong. And the show uses that to force the characters co- to confront their fears about vulnerability and connection with one another. Um so this is a quote from Russian Doll is better at video game storing than storytelling than most video game adaptations, which is by Alison Wilmore, who writes, when Nadia's friend Maxine, played by Greta Lee, fondly refers to a cockroach or a cockroach per Leon's <laughs> indelible pronunciation, Nadia is wounded by it in a way that seems to come as a surprise even to her. No one likes to be compared to a hard to eradicate to be compared to a hard-to-eradicate pest, the city dweller's equivalent of a low-level but forever-responding enemy. But it's one thing to think of yourself as as a hilariously hard-boiled broad who can bounce back from anything. It's another to learn that other people in your life think of you that way as well, as possessing infinite lives of being invulnerable and static, not quite human or in need of human comforts. Being able to hack it on your own doesn't mean you have to or should go without personal connections, something Nadia comes to accept over the course of the season. It's a lesson, as Alan points out, that she unknowingly wrote into a video game she created and he owns, a game he doesn't like because of its exasperating difficulty. I really like this insight. I'm sure Nadia thinks of herself as tough tough and untouchable, but it frankly sucks to be told that that other mm-hmm. people see you that way. Especially for Nadia, who's been dying again and again and knows that she isn't invulnerable. Other people read her that way, but it's not true. And nobody knows that better than Nadia. Mm-hmm. Um, she wants to be seen by others and finds in this moment that Maxine, one of her best friends, doesn't see that vulnerability in her. In the moment, she might get angry at Maxine, but it's a key part of her development too. Along with what Alan says about her, um, her Ariadne, the game, Um, she has to confront the fact that the image she projects is actively hurting her. Mm -hmm. She can't blame people for not being able to reach her. Literally, in the game, there's a pit that you fall into before you can reach the avatar that Nadia has put into the game. Um, She cannot blame people for not being able to reach her when she is the one that won't let them in. Yeah, she gets like faced with a really unsettling mirror of herself maybe that's why she wakes up always in the mirror yeah in front of a mirror she literally has to stare at herself and be like look what you did yeah like being told that you're a cockroach is like doesn't feel great but that also means you had to let someone in enough to know that you're like that i mean it's it's a one-two punch from every direction Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think one of the few negative criticisms I have of the show is that Alan, especially in season two, feels like so much of a side character Mm -hmm. when he feels like he should be more important. It's hard to bring him into this conversation because I've already said so many times that he's struggling with a related issue, Mm -hmm. that his desire to cover up that he's struggling, sorry, that his desire to cover up his problems with exercise and rigid cleanliness are part of what causes the failure of his relationship with Beatrice because he won't open up. I really want more for Alan as a character, especially because season two introduced some really interesting ideas. Him having this intense romantic relationship with a man, even though he was in the body of his grandmother, that never really saw fruition. It's disappointing to me that I don't have more to add on the subject of community with regard to Alan, because I don't know who Alan is outside of Nadia. Okay, picture this. And I know you don't like multiverses, but picture this. Instead of just Russian Doll, we got two shows. One's Alan and one is Nadia, but they also interchange. So they're really one show, but they're mm. two. How cool. I don't hate be. multiverses. I loved everything I guess, everywhere yeah, all at once. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But that would be a really, that would be a really like intense way to, to like watch this story, but it would be really cool. Yeah. But then we'd get more, more of his side. Yeah. But we could still have one show that we've essentially been watching. Yeah. It's like instances. The show did a really good job with that, I think, in the season finale of season one, where yeah. you see the two of them going yep. on their nights. And then that final scene is so good yeah. when they cu- the scenes come together and you see two. I don't know if you notice. You have to watch the scene, I think, several times to get everything that's going on in it. But the final parade scene, you have two Nadias walk right by the center Nadia. Oh, really? Yeah. Two other Nadias pass by. And then disappear into the crowd. And not only that, but the Alan that you see there has the scarf, meaning he is the Alan from the other timeline. So are, uh, this is where things get tricky. And I think that Nadia says this too. Are there really just more Nadia's trying to do all this? It's <laughs> the infinite Nadia's trying to live these lives? Season two suggests, in terms of time travel, that it's a closed loop. Yeah. Meaning that whatever you're experiencing in the present is affected by what has already happened in the past. Therefore, when Nadia goes back to change things, she can't. There are sm- There is a small thing that she could, she did change. Like someone saying, she changed something like, that's not how that happened. Yeah, I think that there's like... Things that can be changed and things that can't. So like the, yeah. the Krugerons cannot be uh, like taken back. Right, yeah. Um, but it doesn't answer that question for us of like, are there infinite Nadias elsewhere conducting infinite other lives and the answer is i don't know maybe yeah she she has that that sudden like fear of that when ruth accidentally shoots her and this idea of like ruth having to live with the fact that she she was the one who killed Mm -hmm. nadia when like you know her mother could have done it a million times and that's why she keeps trying to get the gas leak taken care of even though in some universes maybe there isn't a gas leak (laughs) yeah um She's very concerned with that, but I think that speaks to her uh, her existing problem of being fixated on everything else. Yeah. Um. The point of the show is not how did the time travel work? How does the time loop work? Are there infinite Nadias? So much as the point is, we're talking about Nadia. In fact, the show spends a significant amount of time showing you you cannot figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's very it's very uh, set on the uh, the fact that. We don't care about that. We're talking about this Nadia. Yeah. Um, Which actually is a really good transition to my next and I think final question. What is the purpose of the time loop slash time travel? What purpose is it serving in this show? What purpose? What what purpose? What purpose? What purpose? 
We can speculate about where the time loop came from, as Nadia and Alan do in the show. Is it a punishment? Is it the universe fucking with them? What is it? But I don't think that's all that interesting. Like, we could sit here forever as we just kind of played around with and debate, like, are there infinite Nadias and infinite universes? Like, what? How does how does the time travel explicitly work? But the more interesting question to me is, what is it doing narratively? Well, it's progressing the plot. It's forcing the characters to change. But why a time loop and why time travel rather than something else? Like, why not have them interact with a little dollhouse of themselves or something? You know, like there's there's a million ways that you could address this problem. The problems within the narrative. Why use a time loop and why use time travel to do it rather than something else? I'd be curious, obviously... I've not done research into this, but I would be curious if there is some connection between Judaism and time travel or something similar. Yeah, I don't know that I looked that up specifically, but there, again, there's a lot of writing about this show and its connection to um, Jewish mysticism and Jewish folklore, and there could be something there. Um So in season one, the time loop mirrors the experience of a video game that both Nadia and Alan are familiar with. In video games, you often repeat a task until you succeed at it. That's like a function of video games. Um, It's interesting that Nadia interprets the loop as a bug in the code. Like that's how she she explains it at one her, her view of it to Alan. She says, effectively, this is a bug and we have to keep trying to push through the bug until we get we get through it. Um, so Nadia interprets this loop as a bug when in fact, I think it's working exactly as intended. It's not a reality bug. The things that appear glitchy are in fact the clues that she and Alan need to escape it. The fact that oatmeal disappears, the fact that things start disappearing, that people start disappearing. Mm -hmm. Those are clues. The fact that she runs into Alan in an elevator right before they die. That's a clue. And she eventually does figure it out in season one, right? Because the next season isn't about dying multiple times. Right. Um, In season two, Nadia and Alan experience time travel by getting on the sixth train in New York and ending up in the past. It's not a loop, but it's also not not a loop. I mean, is a subway not a loop? Truly. (laughs) Um, Because what she discovers is that this is a this is closed loop time travel where she can't change anything because the life she's living in the present is already determined by her presence in the past. But more appropriately, she realizes through her inability to change anything that she's looking for somebody to blame. Uh, She's looking to blame her mother for selling the Krugerrands, Vera for getting the Krugerrands in the first place. And ultimately, she has to come to she comes to a choice where she has to choose between the Krugerrands or herself. It's not subtle right that final like one of the last scenes of the show where she has to literally she's literally in a room that's flooding and she's like do i pick up myself or do i pick up the bag of krugerans she should have put the baby in the bag that's why i I truly (laughs) thought that's what she was going to do uh i think that would have been too easy a solution yeah um she, so it's, you know, it's not subtle, but it doesn't have to be to be effective. And I think she's only able to make this decision because time with Ruth as Nadia and as Nora shows her how important Ruth has been to her life. And in the end, she isn't able to be at her bedside when she dies because she has been so fixated on the past and solving things herself that she misses it. Um, but there are things. Heartbreaking. Yeah. But there are things that can't be solved. And I think that's the major thing that Nadia has to learn over the course of the second season. Um, so this is a quote from Russian Doll Season 2, The Message in the Chaos, which is a video by Nautilus Files. Uh, Alan is much keener to understand the lessons being taught by the time-traveling, body-snatching experiences they've been having. He seems to figure out these points before Nadia does and tries to warn her on more than one occasion. 
this is a quote, maybe it's not about fixing anything. You know, like you said, we leveled up. Maybe we're just supposed to like, I don't know, enjoy the ride, unquote. He's totally talking about enjoying the ride of his lover. (laughs) (laughs) He totally is trying. I I read that as like he's trying to be like, let's not fix this because I still want to have a relationship. Ellen tries to relay this lesson to Nadia again when she returns to the present day with baby Nadia. Another quote. We can't escape being the product of things we can't change, unquote. He says that it's human nature or that it's a built in feature that we are products of the past. And the and the idea of trying to change that is wasted energy. The thing about this is that it seems obvious, right? Like, of course, it seems like Nadia should already know that she can't change the past or that changing the past won't necessarily result in happiness. Alan even makes fun of her a bit for it about how she seems to have never seen or read a single time travel story because she keeps trying to she makes all of the basic mistakes. Um, But if you put yourself in Nadia's position and you think of some traumatic thing that happened to you, wouldn't you want the opportunity to fix it, no matter how foolish you know it to be? I mean, to be fair, a lot of crazy shit's happened. So, like, it doesn't seem out of the possibility that she could, right? Yeah. To Nadia. She'd be like, well, you know, I also travel back in time and in my grandmother, so... Yeah, I mean, I have read a million time travel stories, and if I think of the worst thing that's ever happened to me, would I just sit there and let it happen? No. Of course I wouldn't. I would do anything I could to make yeah. that not happen to me. Um, even even though I know that it's foolish. Like, she has to know at base level, how am I going to grow up, like, growing myself up? That's yeah. growing myself. Like, at base level. But I think the thing is that Nadia doesn't care. And not the fact she's like, oh, I don't care. She's like, like purposely says, be damned with the consequences. Yeah. I'll save myself. Yeah. Um. Wouldn't like wouldn't you want to know that you did everything you could to save the person you were then and hopefully heal the person you are now? Yeah. It would be hard to be in Nadia's position and not try to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even Alan becomes fixated on the past to an extent. He has he wants to know what happened to Lenny, even though he has no way to know. And it wouldn't change anything for him to know. But still, he wants to. And that's why he has the discussion with his mother. Did you notice that I'm like 99 percent certain Alan's mother was present at Nadia's birth? She's the MTA agent standing on the platform. I had to skip through that part. Oh, yeah. So probably not. Um, Well, she is there. Anyway, he's very fixated on the idea of knowing what happened to Lenny, even though it's not important to the actual person who experienced it. She's like, well, he's probably out there living his life. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, You can really hope for. Yeah. The point is not that if you are suddenly faced with the possibility of time travel, you shouldn't try to change anything. But that fixation on the past and what could have been and what could have been done isn't healthy or helpful. Mm -hmm. I think we all know this, but it's hard to really live it. Mm -hmm. I say that as a person with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nadia's dabbling in changing the past results in everything being broken in a very literal sense. She's. Um, but it happens in a figurative sense too she spent so much of her life angry and hurt and holding resentment for the people that came before her that it's causing her to be mistrustful and distant from people who care about it who care about her she has to address that not just in the moment by trying to be more open to her friends but by looking at the past in her case directly and trying to understand and forgive what happened Nadia takes a more direct path in that sense than most of us do. But one of the reasons I think the show resonates with people, despite it not like having Nadia sit down and do therapy or whatever, is that it gets at the heart of what a lot of trauma healing is, confronting the past and understanding that we are not beholden to it. Mm-hmm. Um, living and dying, just the ideas of living and dying, are kind of at the core of Russian Doll. 
Uh, in the first season, Alien, 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 uh, Alan and Nadia die over and over and over again. Alan's initial death is due to suicide. Nadia lost her mother to suicide as well. And while Nadia doesn't appear to be actively suicidal, she's not particularly invested in having a long and healthy life either. She has real here for a good time, not a long time vibes, uh, especially with how readily she'll do things like huff paint with a homeless man or smoke so much she's more cigarette than human. Um, smoking in 2019 and 2022 uh, reads differently now than in the past. Like you see a character smoking in 2022 and that tells you something about the character that it wouldn't have when you watch a movie from the 50s or the 80s or something. I was initially, I actually initially wrote uh, that her smoking doesn't translate neatly to Death Wish. Uh, but then I rewatched the scene where she gives the drunk other version of Alan a bedtime story and she describes this fictional version, like the, this kind of storybook version of herself as having a death wish. Hmm. Um, so that threw that right out the window. Uh, anyway, because nicotine is addictive and there's lots of reasons people smoke, um, you know, there's lots of reasons. There's lots of reasons that she as a character could smoke if she were a real person, but we have to also read that decision to smoke. Not only to smoke, but to smoke as much as she does as having a character meaning. Um, so it's pretty clear to me that Nadia, despite her appearance of stability, is not exactly in love with life, which is confirmed by her describing the abstracted storybook version of herself to Alan as having a death wish. Somewhere at some point, I could not find a source for it. I know it happened, especially because it was referenced <laughs> in a Guardian article. But somewhere at some point, Natasha Leone did an interview I have either seen or read but couldn't find where she identified one of the themes of season one as being about how not to die and season two being how to live. Um the show understands the nuance between those two mm -hmm. things, which not everybody under understands. Um, dying is easy. They do it a lot. They It says it on the poster. <laughs> like, uh, it doesn't take a lot of work to die. Nadia keeps doing it without trying. But living, not just surviving, is a lot harder. And that's what season two gets into. It almost feels like season one is actively trying. Like, the stairs, you're absolutely never going to live down those. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not even about, like, how easy it is to die. It's, like, almost feels like the world is just killing you. Yeah. Um, the Nadia and Alan of season one are at best surviving. They are trying not to die. Alan is slower to this, I think, because the time loop for him started with his suicide. Nadia in particular tries to dodge the things killing her and investigate why this is even happening. But she's looking almost entirely for outside reasons like the cocaine slash ketamine lace joint, the yeshiva school that used to be in the building, etc. She's looking for the building is haunted, the drugs are bad, something out here is wrong and it's not me. Well, and it, that feels like the natural like reaction to that, yeah. right? You're, those things don't happen. You're like, oh, it must be something within me. Right. <laughs> At least that wouldn't be my first reaction. It wouldn't be like, oh, this is happening because I have trauma. Yeah. I'd be like, why am I continuing to die? There must be some reason. Yeah. She doesn't want to do internal work, which is part of the conflict that arises between her and Alan. Alan is all internal. He's primarily governed by his feelings and the mm -hmm. suppression of those feelings. And he believes they may be being punished for being immoral. Uh, Nadia rejects that and keeps searching for the external source of their problem. In actuality, the only thing she needs is to find Alan, not because they're soulmates and their love will save them both, but because she saw him the night of her first death and thought about helping him, but didn't. Um, this is a quote for from Russian Doll is, necess is Necessary TV for Our Isolationist Times, which is by Lauren O'Neill. 
if all of what I'm saying sounds like a load of hippie di- hippie therapy bullshit, it's because it it is. So much of therapy is about making peace with your past and moving on from there. Russian Doll expresses that beautifully. But ultimately, redemption comes through Nadia and Allen, Allen's bonds, formed of equal respect, of give and take, and what it does for each of them. And our lives that can feel so fragmented, everything from the government actively depriving the most vulnerable to your small apartment where you eat sad microwave dinners, Russian Doll shows the value of being good to others and how that helps us to be good to ourselves. And I absolutely 100% agree with this mm-hmm. quote. There's that really common saying of you can't love others until you love yourself, which I think we can agree is largely bullshit. Just speaking personally for myself, I'm not good at loving myself, but I and I certainly love other people. Yeah. Um, but working on loving myself and healing absolutely makes me a better partner, a better friend and a better family member. But a really undervalued tactic for being kinder to yourself is to be purposefully and wholeheartedly kind to others. And I don't just mean this in the sort of like hold the door open sense. When I'm having a difficult time or having a particularly bad day, it always, always, always helps me to make a point of being kind to other people by telling them I appreciate them or by offering to say something positive about something they work on or something in that vein. It doesn't solve my problem, right? Um, But everybody comes away feeling better from that interaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Likewise, both Nadia and Alan are struggling immensely, even if they don't see themselves that way. They're closed off about what they're going through, even if they talk openly about it. Nadia certainly isn't shy about herself or about her trauma, but being open about things doesn't necessarily mean that you are being honest about how they're affecting you or how you feel. And Alan has the appearance of somebody who has it all together, but his relationship is falling apart in part because it's all about appearances with him. He isn't dealing with anything beneath the surface because it's easier to have the appearance of stability than to actually do the work to make it happen. Um, They're forced into this time loop and then become dependent on one another to fix things. The experience allows them to grow as individuals. After saying what needs to be said to Beatrice in a previous episode, Alan skips that part of his night entirely when he actually has to do it for real. He doesn't even bother going to Beatrice. He's like, I said what I needed to say. Yeah. Uh, And he goes looking for Nadia while Nadia leaves the party early as well and goes looking for Alan. They just skip the parts of the night. They skip it entirely and they go looking for one another because they know what they need Mm -hmm. is actually to be found in helping the other person. Yeah. And then they put that growth that they've experienced over the season to the test, asking if they can still retain the progress when faced with someone who isn't willing to care for themselves. It would be too easy for them to find one another and like find the the other version of Alan who did go through all of this growth or to find the version of Nadia who went through all of this growth. Um, That would not be a test. The test Mm -hmm. is how can you care for somebody who can't care for themselves? Like, can you still do it? And that's the test that they undergo at the end of that first season. Um, The ultimate, again, the ultimate test of their growth is not what they do when faced with the same stimulus, because remember, we're in the the how not to die stage, Um, but whether they can care for another person. And we find in that first season that they can. Um, Which took an immense amount of growth because they sure couldn't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They sure fucking couldn't. And I feel like Nadia, like, purposely was like, nah, I can't. Yeah. Don't ask me. (laughs) And in season two, now that we've moved past the how not to die stage and into the how to live stage, Nadia has to learn to both understand and forgive. Understanding is a key part of this. Nadia has both the good and bad fortune to be able to experience life as her mother and as her grandmother. And because of this, she's able to understand them in a way that few people can. You can explain what mental illness is like to other people. 
But especially with mental illness that causes hallucinations and delusions, you can't really get it without experiencing it yourself. You can empathize. You can, you know, conduct yourself with empathy. But until you have actually experienced psychosis, you don't actually know what psychosis is like. Which is why I think that scene where she is going through it with her mother is so important. Yeah. So important. And they're like bonding over it. Yeah. They're like, it's a really like tender scene, despite how scary it is. Yeah. Um, same with Vera, Vera's experience in World War II. She could talk about the fear that she experienced being a Hungarian Jewish woman. Um, but without Nadia feeling it, she's never going to truly grasp it. You can empathize, and that's really important. Uh, but Nadia's experienced a lot of trauma. And to be honest, it's easier to blame somebody for how you are than to, than to try to understand what led them to that place and to forgive them despite it. That's not to say that everybody needs to forgive everybody who's caused them trauma, only that this kind of grudge is also a heavy burden to carry. It is really difficult to carry a grudge against somebody and to blame that person for all of your problems. And again, that's a nuance that's often difficult to talk about. And the show just does it. Mm -hmm. The show's like holding this kind of grudge is a burden too. Yeah. And it's good for you to let it go. And it doesn't mean that like, it doesn't mean that, you know, Nadia's mother didn't do anything wrong. So you can, I can forgive you, but I'll never forget. Yeah. Um, when Nadia is able to literally see through her ancestors' eyes and feel what they feel, she's able to move past the blame and into a new phase of understanding with her family. The whole series is really packed with meaning, but there are two key scenes, one in each season, that I think really nail the how how to not die and how to live themes. The first season has the scene where Nadia is trying to convince Alan not to jump off the roof, and he says, you promise I'll be happy? And she replies, no, but I can promise you you'll never be alone. Nobody in the world can promise you happiness, even for a short period of time. But happiness isn't actually what's important in this moment. Alan isn't thinking of killing himself because he's sad or because he's not experiencing happiness, but because he feels alone. This is the worst day of his life. He's found out his girlfriend is cheating on him and that on some level his inability to open up drove her to it. Um, Nadia shows up and tells him the truth. She can't make him happy, but she can make sure that he never feels alone again. And that's enough to talk him off the ledge. The answer to wanting to die isn't happiness. It's community. It's feeling that support. And obviously, it's not really this simple in real life, right? Mm-hmm. Mental health is is complex. Wanting to die is complex. But we're talking about fiction here, and stronger communities are a means of fighting the isolation and loneliness. Are a means of fighting isolation and loneliness, and even mental illness. If I think. I'm, sorry, go ahead. Um, I think that this show does something so well that other shows do fucking awful. Of like specifically like school shooter shows where they'll be like, oh, if all he had was love, or if if someone was their friend, maybe this wouldn't have happened. When I think of that, so I hate that. I think it's so simplistic and it's way more than that. But this show did it so well. Mm-hmm. It did it perfectly. It's exactly how it should have been done. It's not necessarily that the friendship will will cure it, but mm-hmm. it will help. Yeah. At least you don't have to go through it alone. Yeah. And that's important. <laughs> yes. It just um, did it really well. Yeah. The second major scene comes at the end of season two when Nadia is in the void with the bag of Krugerrands and her infant self. She can't carry both. It's subtle as a brick to the head, but the point isn't any less l- any less effective for not being subtle. What will she let go of? I don't think it's even necessarily which will she carry. Which will she let go of? 
Will she insist upon carrying the baggage of these coins and that they could and everything that they could have meant to her? Or will she carry herself forward, knowing that her childhood is going to be difficult and scary and she's going to grow up feeling alienated? She doesn't even hesitate, not only because she might literally die if she leads her child self there. um, But if she did, if she did choose her child self there. That's also choosing death. And she chooses life. And she she knew, too. She's like, all right, I get it. Like, I think yeah. she literally says, like, okay, okay, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she, so she chooses life in this moment because she's grown throughout this process to understand that she cannot keep on looking backward. Uh, and I think that quote from O'Neill, specifically this part, Russian doll shows the value of being good to others and how that helps us to be good to ourselves. I think that that is exactly it. I don't know that season one, Nadia would have chosen her infant self over the Krugerrands. Like, yeah, I don't know that she was ready to make that choice. I think she probably would have sat there trying to get both as like, the water rises. Just <laughs> absolutely like almost holding the bag in her teeth and the baby above the water. <laughs> <laughs> she had to learn to care for Alan, who is a lot like her mirror self in a way. All his indulgences are secret, for example. Like he's kind of this inverse of Nadia. Um, she had to learn to care for him before she could go on the journey that she undertakes in season two. So this moment where she chooses herself over the Krugerrands is a sign of growth, not just the growth that's taken place over season two, but also season one. And that's what brings us to that idea of it's not just choosing how not to die. It's choosing it's or it's not just knowing how not to die. It's knowing how to live, choosing her infant self, knowing what's going to become is her, is her deciding how she wants to live. It's choosing the potential of the future Mm -hmm. over the baggage of the past. And that doesn't mean that she's fully fixed as a person. Alan isn't fully fixed as a person. Every single fucking one of us is carrying, you know, every trauma that we've ever experienced around with us. Trunks. Yeah. (laughs) The, the baggage, if you will. Um, we, you know, we're all carrying around that kind of stuff. And no matter, even if we can time travel to the past and be like, and be hit with a heavy handed metaphor about, you know, money and babies and so on. Um, we're, like, that's not going to fix us, right? It's just a point of understanding that can help us make the choice to move forward. Um, and I think that's what the show really, really does. And I think the show's really, really good. It was really good. I thought it was, it was just, how'd they do it? <laughs> how they do that? How they do that in fifteen half-hour episodes? I know. I can't believe how short they were. It was. It was. It was impressive. Yeah. Um. And yeah, it was just really impressive. Yeah, I love this show. I'm so glad that we finally got to do it and that I got to rewatch it because yeah. I try not to rewatch things too much when there's so many other things out there in the world to experience. That sounds like a you statement, but um. I'm glad I got to rewatch this one because yeah. it was really good. It was really good. I appreciated what it had to say and it said it well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm excited to see what season three will be. Mm-hmm. Cause right. It is coming. Well, I know that they wanted, they want to do three seasons. I don't know that there's any news about season three. Like, I don't know if there's an announcement of it, if it's filming, if it's been filmed. It doesn't look like there's an announcement because there's those typical, I don't know if you ever look up one. Yeah. Uh, Russian Doll season, everything we know so far, potential release date, renewal status, and what we know. There's no actual, like... Information. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. The I think my understanding is that there's always a plan for it to be three seasons long, but I don't know that there's any information beyond that. Um but hopefully there will be a season three because I really love seasons one and two. Um, and I really want more. Yeah. And I love the costumes. The costuming in the show is perfection. Um, and also, 
I don't think we talked about this enough. Natasha Leon's hot. She's she's like the she's like the the perfect. Her hair is just great. Ugh, I'm so jealous. I wish my hair was like that. Yeah, her hair is just great. I want curly hair so bad, but I have. I do know this. I have just uh, thin, you've, fine, wavy hair. You've gotten pretty good at doing it, though. Yeah, my hair doesn't hold a curl either. It's a tragedy. It's the real tragedy in my life. <laughs> Fuck all that other That's shit. Your trauma. My trauma is that I don't have curly hair. <laughs> uh, yeah, Russian Doll. It's a good show. It's a good one. It's a good one, in my opinion. It's uh, maybe the best Netflix original. Sex education is really good, but I think I like this one more. I'd have to really sit down and look at everything. Uh, that's it. Do you have anything else to say about Russian Doll? No. Okay. That's it for this episode. You can find us online at fakegirlscast.com, which has all of our previous episodes as well as episode transcripts for many. Well, I wouldn't even say many. Some of our <laughs> some of our episodes have transcripts. Um, thank you to Emily Jude for helping with those transcripts. Uh, you can check them out again on our website. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, if you like this podcast, continue leave it, continue consider leaving us a review or continue or continue to do it. Uh, leave us a review on whatever podcast service you use, um, iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it is now. I don't think you can leave reviews on Spotify. I don't think so. Whatever it is, consider leaving us one and tell us how great we are. <laughs> That's all I need to know. Um, next, we're going to be taking a break through the month of December. Um, so you will still get what we've been up to, but you will not be getting full length episodes until we return in January with an episode on American Gods, the book and the show. Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's all. All right. Catch on the flip side. Which they actually said in the show, proving that they listen to Fakey Girl. So it's, you're welcome. It's accurate. You're welcome for this. <laughs>